let me start with this. The church, okay, the church was never designed to be something that the professionals did, but it's to be in the hands of the people. The idea that the pastor or elder or whoever is the one who does the ministry and then the people come and show up and enjoy the ministry is not the picture of the New Testament church, okay? The biblical idea is that the people of the church are the ones who do the work of the ministry of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, verses 11 and 12, that, that he uh, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, that the pastors, that the elders, that, that the leaders of the church are the ones who equip people to do the ministry. This is your ministry. And I want to remind you this at the very beginning, because as we walk through this section this morning in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, and we talk about, about a Jesus-centered ministry, we're talking about something that's for you and done by you as the people of the church. And yet even as I say that, I want to be really clear that I never want to be anyone who guilts anyone into ministry. And that never works long term. As we continue in our series in the book of Colossians and see Paul's ministry philosophy, I think we can easily begin to realize just how precious and how joyful it is to be involved in ministry for Jesus and for his church that he is building. Amen? So we learned last week in verses 24 to 27 of this, of this mystery of the church that's been revealed, that the Gentiles are now part of God's plan. They've always been part of God's plan. And not just that, but Jesus is in them, their hope of glory. And now he transitions to talk about ministry. If Jesus is in you, if Jesus is your hope of glory, then it will shape the way we view the church and it will shape the way that we view ministry in the church towards each other as a part of the church. It brings us this morning. Here's what we're going to do. Six keys, six ideas, six ways, whatever you want to say it, but six keys to a Jesus-centered ministry, okay? Number one is this, preach Jesus. Pretty simplistic, right? Chapter one, verses 28 and verse 29 says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim. Who's him? Amen. Amen. It's Jesus. We can even tell that like Christ in verse 27 is in you the hope of glory. And now he's the one that is our message. He's the one that we proclaim. Jesus is the heartbeat of the book of Colossians. Paul's saying not only that, he is the heartbeat of everything that we do. He's the message that's preached. It's all about Jesus. Now listen, there's a lot of messages we could preach today, and a lot of them are good, and some of them not so good, right? 
There's some good things and some not so good things. We can talk about a message of reconciliation. It's important. It's needed. We have a message of love. We have, have a message of, of healing that we can talk about, a message of perseverance. We have the message of, of enduring through trials. We have messages of peace. We have messages even of having fun with each other, messages of even entertainment and compromise. But above all the messages, the most important message, the only staple for any ministry has to be Jesus Christ. Has to be. And I think we sometimes forget, friends, that Christianity is not something that we do. It's a relationship we pursue, right? That there's no one else that's more important to talk about than Jesus. He is the one who made us. He is the one who sacrificed for us. He is the one who died for us. He's the one who intercedes for us. He is our living hope. You know, Philippians chapter 2 Uh, verses 9 through 11 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the what? Name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, friends, we only have one message and every knee is going to bow to him. Every knee either now in salvation or in eternity in judgment, but every knee is going to bow. Every knee. Even in the context of Colossians, Pastor Jeff, a few um, weeks ago, don't forget in verses 13 through 20, like Jesus is God. Jesus is our savior. We see Jesus is the creator of all things, that Jesus is, is preeminent in all things. So this is not rocket science, is it? Like if we want to have a Jesus-centered ministry, guess what that means? That Jesus is the one that we talk about more than any other person. If we desire a ministry that impacts people, that impacts a city, then Jesus is on our lips more than sports, more than politics, more than taxes, more than weather, more than schools, more than food, more than anything, even OBJ. Right? It's about Jesus. And if we want to have a great, if we want to have an excellent ministry, then we do not need to have necessarily great events. We don't need to have great food. We don't need to have coffee on Sunday mornings. Sorry, I don't want to intrude. I know, I dare even mention that. We don't need to have great music. I'm super glad that we do. We don't need to wear suits and ties. We don't have to have cut jeans and flannel shirts. We don't... We don't need to have any of those things. Not that any of those things are bad. They're all good. What we need is the message of Jesus. And I'm intentionally just harping on this over and over and over so that we don't forget that we proclaim Jesus. How do we do that? It's this. It's the book. Jesus is the message of the Bible. This book is all about him. And if you remove Jesus from this book, you cut the heart out of the book. He is the main message of the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, the entire Bible. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, Jesus is the bronze serpent. 
In Deuteronomy, he is the, he's the promised prophet. In Joshua, he is the unseen captain. In Judges, he is our deliverer. In Ruth, he is our heavenly king, uh, a kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, in Kings, and Chronicles, Jesus is the promised king that we look for. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the restorer of the nations. In Esther, he's our advocate. In Job, he is our redeemer. In Psalms, he is everything. He's all in all. In Proverbs, he's our pattern. In Ecclesiastes, he's our goal. In Song of Solomon, he is our beloved. In the prophets, he is our coming prince of peace. In Matthew, he is our king. In Mark, he is the servant in Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he is risen and seated and sending. In the letters and the epistles, he is indwelling and filling. In Revelation, he is returning and he is reigning. Lord. Friends, we have no other message than Jesus. We have no other message to proclaim unless we think that in our wisdom, we have something that's more profound that's going to impact pe- people. Huh. <laughs> We're fooling ourselves. We proclaim Jesus by proclaiming the Bible. And so preach Jesus. Secondly, this. Be strategic. Be strategic. What do I mean? So when we say we need to preach Jesus, do I mean that all ministries need to do what I'm doing right now? Like if you're not up front and everyone's sitting there listening and someone's preaching like this, then you're not doing a Jesus-centered ministry. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying at all. That wasn't Paul's model, and I don't think it's the model of, of a great ministry. Church, friends, listen, churches cannot be less than preaching, but they have to be more than that. Okay? And so let's deal with some terms. What does he say in verse 28? Him we proclaim. Proclaim. What does that mean? What does it mean to proclaim something? It's a, it's a technical term that's used only in Acts. It's used in, in a little bit in the letters of Paul, which is a term for missionary preaching. Okay? It's a term for the, um, it's closely linked to the gospel. It has the idea of announcing, Okay? Um, announcing officially or announcing publicly. I think in the context, it's no doubt the message of Christ. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's the forgiveness of sins that become really the significant elements of the message that Paul proclaims to people. But he doesn't stop there. Because I think the next couple phrases modify or describe what it means to proclaim. You see, as him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone. So two terms there. What does it mean to warn someone? Warning. How does a person proclaim? Well, they warn people of incoming danger. Some of the translations that you have may say admonish, right? To warn or admonish means to give encouraging counsel in view of sin and coming judgment. It's a it's essentially seeing someone walking down a path and that there's a cliff there that you know it's there and you can see it, but they don't see it. And so you're coming to admonish them and warn them, listen, don't go down that way. It's danger and it's going to end in destruction. And so you try and steer them back. You try and convince them. You're warning them of their danger. I think it's most clearly seen in connection to confronting others' sins. We, we, we help each other out on the basics needs of Christianity. Now, what I'm not saying there, and I don't think what Paul's saying there, is that you harp like you're a dripping faucet on someone's sin. 
We're trying to help people see the blind spots that they don't have in regards to keeping them following Jesus or helping them pursue Jesus. Um, I hope as we do this, we are like the Apostle Paul who said to the people of Ephesus, the leaders of Ephesus, when he said in Acts 20, uh, 31, that I did not see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonishing someone with the truth of Jesus is not something that just happens randomly. It's, it's deeply cons- uh, uh, connected and moved for them into tears and paths as you're going down. It constitutes a deep relationship that's being established. You know, it's interesting, this word warning is not something that just only spiritual people do. Again, this is for everyone. And uh, just flip over to Colossians 3.16 a second. You see it says, um, so it's just one page over, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You know that word right there? It's the same word, warning. Admonishing. It's the same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 28. As the word of Christ is dwelling in us, we will be able to see the person who's going down the wrong way and help steer them in the right direction. And yet, this is why I say we need to be strategic, for not every person needs warnings all the time, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And then that phrase that just throws me for a loop, he says, be patient with all of them. <laughs> like, Paul, why did you have to write that one? Right? Admonish the idol, encourage the thing hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We could go on and on. But the point that we need to be is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people with an emphasis on helping them stop sinning and pursue Jesus. But he also says in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. This is imparting truth to others. And in some way, friends, everyone is a teacher. In fact, even that reference back to Colossians 3.16, right? Everyone is a teacher that we teach and we admonish one another that we always teach either by words or by life. Um, You guys, uh, many of you know my oldest son, Karsten. He's in college now, but when he was here, he played drums a lot. And when he was about about a year and a half or so, we, uh, you know, it's always interesting when you're new parents, like any new parents, like anyone out there that's like, hey, we have our first kid, none? Okay, great. Glad we're tracking with each other. You can remember back then, okay, when you're like, hey, we're going to start out, we're going to like be really healthy, like we're never going to give them McDonald's fries, and like, we're never going to, right, we're not going to, um, and one of the things that my wife was like, hey, we're never going to give him pop, right, or at least until a certain age, you know, and I got to tell you, hmm, every now and then as I'm drinking my diet Mountain Dew, he would look over at me, and he's like, uh, uh, please, please, and I'm like, finally I caved, and I gave him some, and I, and when he's done, I said, now, now listen, don't tell mommy. <laughs> and so this happened like maybe more than once, maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe four times. Maybe It was just kind of a regular pattern. And then one day we're sitting at lunch. I think it was a Sunday afternoon after church. We're just sitting there and it's my wife. She's awesome. 
and me and Karsten. And he's begging for some of my drink. And I'm like, I look at him, I'm like, come on, babe, what's the, come on, just one sip. And she finally relents, gives it to him. He takes the drip, sip, puts it down. Don't tell mommy. (laughs) Now listen. I got to tell you, in that moment, I'm like, I don't don't have any idea where that came from, right? (laughs) I was imparting something to my son in a really negative way, wasn't I? Hiding something from his mom. The things that we should be imparting to everyone are the ways of Jesus. And it may happen formally in some form of class or small group or Sunday school lesson or something like that. But more often than not, do you know when it happens? As you're just living life. It's informal. We take the things of Jesus and we admonish people who are walking away from them to help them. And then we teach them what's the ways of Christ. And listen, if you feel inadequate for this role, good. Because none of us are are adequate enough for this role. And we'll see in a minute that even the Apostle Paul didn't think that he was adequate for it but had the power of the Spirit of God alive in him. So let me just say that there's always someone who knows less about Jesus than you do. Find them and teach them. Find them and teach them. And do you notice that what he says there, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that last little phrase, with all wisdom, it refers to practical discernment, that there is a bunch wrapped up here. But let me just point out that there's a way to preach Jesus and teach Jesus in wisdom and a way to do it without wisdom. And as we grow more and more into the love of Jesus, my prayer is that the Spirit of God will lead us, will lead my tongue to be communicated the spirit of the wisdom Paul describes here. It's kind of like the psalmist um, in Psalm 119. Oh, don't go there yet. Psalm 119, verses 12 through 13 says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. And then he says, With my lips I have told all the ordinances of the mouth. So he's saying, Lord, teach me. And with my lips I'm telling everyone about the ordinances of your lips. The learner becomes the teacher. And I wonder if in all wisdom is simply a teaching out of the overflow of what the Lord is teaching you. It's not a do as I say, but it's a, hey, watch what I'm doing sort of thing. Learning become strategic in how we proclaim Jesus to others. Some will need admonishing. Some will need teaching. All need Jesus. Third, don't discriminate. I don't know if you noticed the uh, repeating phrase here in verse 28. Him we proclaim warning who? Everyone. And teaching who? Everyone. With all wisdom that we may present who? Everyone. Mature in Christ. Three times in one verse he says everyone. That a Jesus-centered ministry understands the gospel and the implications of the gospel are for all people. That this ministry is not for certain groups of people. It makes me, um, I think this makes sense, as Paul just pointed out in verse 27, just that we learned last week that the Gentiles are now part of the 
uh, the kingdom or this mystery has been revealed that they are. See, a Jesus-centered ministry is not about your little group of people that you hang around with and only them. It's for everyone. Paul's point is that no one is excluded from the ministry. One person said it like this. He said, there is no part of Christian teaching that's to be reserved for a spiritual elite. All the truth of God is for all the people of God. And in fact, the language here is really specific that Paul writes everyone. He's not referring to just some general sort of universality of the message if, um, um, as if he were referring to a corporate gathering and it may or may not include you specifically. What he means is that each person individually was the object of his care and his concern. And so what's the point? I think the point is that workers of this ministry are working with each other, that our goal is that all people as individuals are the audience of the ministry. It means that when the world rejects someone based upon what they look like, who they are, what clothes they wear, what language they speak, we are there to say, no, 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 no. None of those things even matter. We're here to minister to Jesus to them no matter what they look like or what they wear. It means that there's no differentiation between male, female, race, color of skin. So I gotta, I mean, I gotta just tell you, I mean, I, so one of the things that I do in our role and the missions role that we're involved with is helping churches just think through of reaching their Samaritan people who don't look like you, who don't speak like you, who, who um, maybe think differently than you, but they live close to you. Martin Luther, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was famous for saying that Sunday mornings are the most segregated hour in the country. Why? You know, I, listen, my guess is that most churches are welcoming of others of race as long as they are willing to fit into the culture and the preferences of their race, of their culture. A lot of churches I talk to, I got to tell you, they say, yeah, of course we want to be a multicultural. But what they really mean is they want to be multicolored. There's a difference between being multicolored and multicultural. Why? Because giving up of our preferences is so difficult. It's so hard. We want to be in here and we want what we want. Listen, and then what happens is we become like a country club where we end up like, hey, listen, we hire these staff to do these things and it better be the way that we want them to be. It was just the last couple days, um, Thursday, Friday, I was with, uh, you can pray for them, named Chris and Caitlin Brown. They are um, some, uh, a church planner that we're trying to work with and partner with that are planning a church in Ferguson, Missouri. I don't know if you've heard of Ferguson, Missouri. It's, it's not exactly the easiest place in the world, in the United States. You talk about racial tension. Great couple. Man, I'm excited to be able to partner with them. And as we talk, like even, here's an African-American guy planning a church in a really, like, hotbed, like, of culture. And he's like, listen, I want our church to reflect the community. I don't want it to be just a black church. I want it to look, reflect the culture of the entire community. 
Listen, a Jesus-centered ministry is for everyone and pursues everyone and is willing to give up preferences for everyone. Number four is this. Have a goal. Have a goal. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, some of your um, translation will say so that or in order that, this little word shows purpose or goal of what we do in the Jesus-centered ministry. What is it? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we talk about Jesus. We're strategic in how we present his message to people. We don't discriminate. And we do this for a purpose that we can, that we may be able to present people mature in Christ. It's, it's this word teleos, a complete. It has this idea of being perfect or whole. And the word carries with it the idea that in order to be complete or perfect, you're a person who keeps God's laws holy, so to walk without blemish in his ways. It's what the uh, Epaphras, who's the pastor of the church of Colossae, prayed for them in Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, and fully assured in all the will of God. Now listen, uh, I want to shock you for a second. So just hang with me. Don't like throw things at me yet, all right? Allow me to make my argument and come back to it, right? Um, I believe the goal of the Christian life is perfection. Now even when I say that, maybe the hairs on the back of your neck may stand up, and maybe rightly so, but let me explain this. God is certainly gracious and forgiving, but the goal of the Christian life is obedience. It is that we would stand perfect, that we would be complete. I mean, why did Jesus reconcile us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22? It says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here's the point, and we'll come back around to it um, in a second. But God's work of reconciliation in Christ And Paul's active ministry have the same end in view, namely the perfection of each man in Christ on the final day. What does that mean? It means that God's goal in saving us was so that when he returns or that when we die and stand before him in judgment, we are holy and blameless and perfect in his sight. Why? Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, right? And then at the same time, Paul's ministry goal was that as he proclaimed the message of Jesus by admonishing and teaching all people, the outcome would be that they would grow in their spiritual maturity. So listen, friends, it's like this. What's the goal for eternity becomes the goal for today, right? What's the goal in eternity becomes the goal for today. God's goal in salvation is that we would be different Why would our goal as Christians today look any different than that? Why would the goal for us to be to look like the world, to talk like the world, to act like someone who is not redeemed? I'm not saying this isn't a long process. I'm not saying it is not incomplete. But we as mature, we are more and more saying no to the things of the world 
and more and more saying yes to the things of Jesus, that our goal in ministry is to help others walk in holiness with Christ. So when he says that we do this to present everyone mature in Christ, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about discipleship. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about discipleship. It's walking hand in hand with someone and trying to help them follow Jesus. It is helping them take baby steps in holiness towards the things of Jesus. It's someone pulling you. It's seeking out someone to help you follow Jesus. And it's you seeking someone out to help them follow Jesus. This is the goal of our Jesus-centered ministry. Number five, work hard. Here we move into verse 29. For this I toil. For what? For you Bible students out there, all you grammarians, you know, I grew up, my mom taught high school grammar. It's, it's, I got to tell you, it's brutal having your mom as an English teacher. And, uh, well, I could, there are a lot of stories I could say there. But let me just go all grammarian on you for a second. For this I toil, what does this modify? What is, what is it that Paul is toiling it makes most sense that he's saying he's toiling or he's working or he's laboring for the purpose of seeing people complete in Jesus. That's the this. Paul's goal is not just to see people converted. That's just the beginning of the Great Commission. He wants to see them grow to maturity. This word toil or kapos, it's a, it's a word that's used in secular Greek of a beating or weariness or exhaustion. For this I toil, it is, it is the weariness, it's exertion, it's, it's become known as, um, it actually became known as a proper word, and most specific word used for physical tiredness. Physical tiredness that was induced by maybe work or exertion or heat, it, it denoted severe labor. So, so, so someone in that culture may have come home from the end of a long day's work and said, I'm kapos. I'm weary. I'm labored. I'm toiled. I'm sure many of you know, have experienced times in your life where you're completely and utterly exhausted by work. Summer after I graduated college, I worked, um, I grew up, my dad was a carpenter, so I worked for a construction company a lot, but the summer after I graduated college, I was an intern at a church, and, but that summer, I went and worked for a construction company framing houses, custom framer. And I got to tell you, I got home the first night at work at like 5 o'clock and went straight to bed. I was like, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was brutal. And many of you have stories of that. Maybe your life is like that. Your places of employment, sports, events completely wore you out. Maybe emotional, maybe physical illnesses that made you to the point of exhaustion. But what about ministry to others? What about toiling in ministry? Like, like toiling to see people become mature in Christ. Friends, ministry is hard. It's not easy. And it can be and is exhausting. 
And friends, listen, here's what happens. Like honestly, you exhaust your energy helping others walk closer with Jesus and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way that you want it to turn out. It just doesn't. You spend all time and labors on others who don't come through for you on their word or the promises that they make. And maybe you see little fruit of your labors. I mean, think of the guys that are in the prison ministry. Keep going and keep going and labor and toil to help those men become complete in Christ. And oftentimes what happens is you labor and at the end of it, it was just words. You see little fruit from your labor, or maybe sometimes no fruit. Maybe after all you labor, you feel like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.11, who said, I'm afraid that I may have labored kapos over you in vain. And friends, listen, you do this to the point of all your energy is going towards this goal of seeing other people become complete in Christ, something that will never happen this side of eternity. Does sound like fun? Christian, this is your calling. Remember what we said at the beginning? This is not simply the calling of a pastor or elder or leader of a church. It is the calling of the Christian because ministry is in the hands of the Christian. The Christian is the one who does the work of the ministry. Listen, I have no doubt that if Paul knew this church and he would write about many of you what he wrote about Mary in, in Romans 16.6, it's so precious, that she has worked, it's a verb form of kapas, that she's worked hard for you. Ministry is not easy. It means you get up early in the morning. It means that you often stay up late with people when they have problems. It means you sacrifice your hobbies. It means you give money away to those in need instead of buying that new gadget that's going to just rust or be stolen. It means that you give and you give and you give. Listen, friends, a Jesus-centered ministry is one where people work hard, but we can't stop there. Listen, here's the last one. Trust God. Trust God. I love verse 29. For this I toil, for what? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all my energy? No, I didn't say that, does it? Struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Wow. It's like Paul is saying, listen, I work my tail off for the purpose of seeing people striving for that perfection that will only come once they die. While I'm spending all of my energies to make this ministry happen, for Jesus' name, I gladly acknowledge that the strength for such labor only comes from above. Well, let's put it like this. If someone were to ask the question, where do we see God most powerfully at work? I think what Paul's answer would be, where I'm laboring intensively. See, as Paul strives and labors, God does the work. God does the work. And you can rest your head at night in your exertion and your toil of how difficult ministry is, and you rest your head at the end of the night and you say, it's off my shoulders. God, you do the work. I'm going to trust you that you're going to do the work. We work hard. God does the work. 1 Corinthians 15. 
I love this. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Friends, as we make our way through the book of Colossians and center all things on Jesus, let us remember, preach Jesus and be strategic and don't discriminate and have a goal, work hard. But at the end of the day, we trust God for the results. Let me pray. Father, Father, we, wow. We come and we just lay it at your feet. Lord, we, we, we want to be faithful and we want to... Uh, Preach Jesus. Proclaim him. And we want to admonish those who are walking away from him. And we want to teach those, um, everyone that we come in contact with, what it means to be a Christ follower, that we want to help people grow to the point of maturity in their life. Father, and we're going to work hard at this. Lord, I just pray that your spirit just moves on the hearts of your people, that maybe even discipleship relationships can be established and happen. And Lord, we do this and we work hard and we labor in these and we toil knowing that only you are the one that's going to work it. And so we trust you. Lord, Father, you are a living hope of all things. In Christ's name, amen.